Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you again. Um, and good to see some new faces here again as well. We are going to take up uh, for a second time the parable of the Good Samaritan because I promised you about three weeks ago that we were going to look at this parable of Jesus, this famous parable of Jesus, twice. And I hope you will find, as I do, and I did, that uh, this will be entirely worthwhile because there's a lot going on in this parable. And I think, as you might see today, more than initially meets the eye. So if you turn with me to Luke chapter 10, we're going to read once again verses 25 through 37. Luke 10, 25 through 37. You can read along in your Bibles, or I believe the words will also be on the screen. Beloved, listen to God's word. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, replied Jesus. Do this and you will live. But this expert in the law wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, But who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, He gives him a parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. He lavishes him with love. Jesus said then, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A young boy was sitting down at the dinner table with his mother one evening. And he said, Mom, can I ask you a question? She said, of course, son. You know that you can always ask me questions. Go ahead. So I was just wondering, Mom, is it good to eat bugs? And the mother said, oh, that's a really great question. But you know what? Seeing we're sitting down at the dinner table, how about we talk about this later? This isn't the kind of conversation I want to have at the dinner table. And the young boy said, okay, Mom. After dinner was done, the mother said, Now, what was that you wanted to talk about bugs? He says, Oh, don't worry about it, Mom. There was a bug in your soup, but it's gone now. <laughs> it may have been good for this young boy to listen to his mom and not talk about bugs. But it may have been better for him simply to point out that there was a bug in her soup. If you were with us last week, you will know that we looked at the Mary and Martha story, which immediately comes after the parable of the Good Samaritan, we looked at this last week and said that one of the great challenges of the Christian life is not so much to learn to discern between the good and the bad, although that is something we have to learn, 
But the greater challenge is to sometimes learn to discern between the good and the better, and to learn to choose the better. Mary, in the story, chooses to do what is better than Martha. Martha has chosen to busy herself serving Jesus, but Mary has chosen to sit down at his feet to learn from him and to adore his person. Mary has chosen what is better. But one of the things we did not look at is the question about why. Why is it better, actually, in the Christian life, if there is a choice between the two of serving Jesus and sitting down at his feet and learning from him and being present to his person, why is it better to choose the latter option? Well, beloved, the answer that we find in that story itself flickering there and certainly in the Gospel of Luke is this. If our priority is not to learn from Jesus and bask in his presence in adoration, then our service to Jesus and what we do in the name of Jesus can become something other than service to Jesus. We can use our service to Jesus or our service to the living God and it will become something that actually at the end of the day is designed to serve ourselves. Serve maybe our need for recognition. Serve perhaps our need to construct an identity for ourselves. Serve maybe our egotistical desires. Serve maybe our own agenda. Serve our own family or our own tribe. You see this flickering in the text a little bit in the Mary Martha story itself. When Jesus comes to Martha and says, Martha, Martha, your heart is concerned and worried about many things. But Mary has chosen what is better. Her heart is worried and concerned about me. But perhaps there is a notion in this text that Martha is concerned with looking good as a hostess because part of her identity is built on being seen by others to be the servant of all. Her service to Jesus in a way becomes transformed into serving herself in the name of Jesus. It's not that clear in this text, but it's certainly clear in other aspects of the Gospel of Luke. With the religious teachers above all. The religious teachers have devoted their lives to serving the living God. Yet, consider it. When the living God comes with the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, they don't recognize him. And actually, at one point in Luke's Gospel, they want to throw him off a cliff. Their service to the living God has actually become something other than this service to God. And it's for this reason that they need to go back and themselves sit at the feet of Jesus, of the living God himself, and learn what his desire is and learn the deeper nature of his desires and will in the world. Now why do I bring this up as we approach this parable of the Good Samaritan again? It's because something very similar, this theme resurfaces in this text. Here we have an expert in the law who's devoted his life to serving the living God. And yet, as is revealed in this parable, in Jesus' interaction with it, he wants to serve God on his own terms. According to his own definitions of what love is, and in particular, according to his own idea of who fits under the category of the neighbor. As we read in the text, not only does this expert in the law approach Jesus to, note, test him, but then, when Jesus says, you have answered correctly, 
that true religion consists in loving God above all and loving your neighbors yourself, he wants to justify his religious behavior in the world by asking the following question. But Lord, who is my neighbor? Which really, when you look at the Greek, you could understand this question as this. But Lord, who is the one that is near to me that I must love? Whom should I put in the category of those who are near to me? Now, why do I say this? Well, the Greek is fascinating. The Greek word for neighbor is plesion, plesion. And that's the word that's used in this text. Who is my plesion? This word is translated elsewhere and used elsewhere in the Greek language simply to describe something that is near. So in John chapter 4, Jesus will say, or the author, the author of the Gospel of John says that Jacob's well was near Placeon Sikar. He's not saying it's a neighbor, although he is. Jacob's well is neighboring to Sikar. The sense, the definition you can have simpler, most simply of a neighbor in Scripture is this. The neighbor is the one who is near to you. But what the Jews of Jesus' day were doing, and the religious teachers, most among them, was saying, but that's a narrow category. Who is near to me? My wife is near to me. My family is near to me. Those who share my views are near to me. And so who becomes the object of my love? Those who are in my hometown, my family, those whom I find likable. And what Jesus wants to do is to explode their category of who their neighbor is. That is to say, who they are to consider are near to them and therefore become objects of tenderness and objects of love. Does that make sense? Who are the ones near to me? And Jesus wants to explode this category. As we saw now three weeks ago, the first way that he explodes this category is through the parable itself. Notice, the two religious leaders, the priest and the Levite, when they see somebody who is broken in the road by no fault of their own, somebody who's broken and battered and bruised in life by no fault of their own, they don't see somebody who is near to them. They do not see a neighbor. They don't see somebody who must be the object of their love, but they walk around on the other side, which, which Jesus makes very clear in the parable. They pass by on the other side. They don't see one near to them. The Samaritan, however, stands as a reproof to their truncated religion because he does properly and righteously and in the image of God himself treat this broken man who's broken by no fault of his own as an object of love. And I said three weeks ago that true religion therefore consists, if nothing else in this, besides the love of God, of course, and prioritizing that, it consists in having an eye out for the broken in our midst and a hand up for them. This is what true religion consists in. We have to have our categories exploded. When you providentially come somebody across in your life that is broken, because of no fault of their own, something's happened to them. They've been traumatized by life in one way or another. They've been beaten up. We are to see a neighbor, one who is near to us, and one whom we are to be toward like the good Samaritan was toward this person. But now what I want to focus on is another element of our text, another way that Jesus wants to explode 
his contemporaries' category of who the neighbor was, but also our category of who the neighbor was. It's incredibly surprising. It is seldom noticed in this text what Jesus does, but like most of Jesus' parables, there's a twist in the tale. There's a surprising moment. Something comes up that you didn't foresee, and it happens in our text. I divert your attention to verse 36 of our text. Notice the question that Jesus asks this man after he tells the parable. If you're reading it carefully, you will notice that Jesus does not ask the question that we would expect Jesus to ask of him. Right? He's just told this parable of the Good Samaritan, where the Samaritan treats the broken man, who's broken by no fault of his own, as the object of his love, as the one who is near him. By, and then you get all these wonderful descriptions of what he does. He lavishes love on the man. The question we would expect is this one. Which of the three men treated the broken man as a neighbor? And the answer to that is obvious. The Samaritan did, right? He treated the broken man as a neighbor. But that's not the question Jesus asks. Oh no, Jesus has something else in store. He knows that they will draw that conclusion from the parable he just told. He doesn't want to insult their intelligence, perhaps, but even more than that, he wants to expand their category of the broken even more. Look at the question he does ask. Which of the three, do you see it? Which of the three was, nobody's looking at their Bible, which of the three was a neighbor to the broken man? What? He completely changed the direction of the question. In other words, which of the three is the neighbor to the broken man? The one, the broken man, the one, the Levite, the one the Jew now needs to turn around and treat as their neighbor. The one whom the expert of the law, if he's going to be like God, needs to treat as his neighbor. Who was a neighbor to the broken man? What, Jesus? You want us to focus on the Samaritan? Not the Samaritan. Really? Jesus is exploding their categories. He is saying that the one to be loved by the man, but then also by implication, by the Levite, by the Jew, by the rulers of the law, by each one, is the Samaritan. Oh no, please. Not the Samaritan. You see the way the expert in the law replies to this question in verse 36-37? What does he say when Jesus asks this question, which of the three was a neighbor to the broken man? He says, it was the Samaritan. No, he doesn't say that. Notice the way he depersonalizes his description. He doesn't even want to talk about a Samaritan. He'll talk about a man who is merciful, but he distances himself. He depersonalizes. Because the Samaritans for the Jews in that day are an object of reproach. You cannot imagine a more contemptible category of people. It was right and good to disdain a Samaritan. It was right and good to lift up your nose and find even the, the sound of the word Samaritan disgusting. It's morally reprehensible. It's morally repugnant. Why? Well, not so much because of no fault of their own, but because of historical decisions that the Samaritans made, because of their current beliefs and because of their current behaviors. 
Their thinking was all wrong. Their spirituality was all wrong. And their history was all wrong. You could perceive them according to their group and hate them for their group identity. Why? Well, because of their beginnings. Samaritans came about because some unfaithful Jews during the exile began to intermarry with Gentiles, with unbelievers, with pagans, with idol worshippers, and started to have families with them. They were half-breeds, according to the Jews. They were mongrels. They were unclean. But not only were they half-breeds and mongrels because of their beginnings and to be repudiated on that basis, but also because of their beliefs. They believed that the first five books of the Bible, that was God's Word, but only the first five books of the Bible. Not the prophets, not the Psalms, not the wisdom literature. That wasn't authoritative sacred scripture. Only the first five books. So they were also considered to be heretics. Utterly deficient in their thinking. If they believed that only the first five books were authoritative and not the other ones. But then also their behaviors. Their worship was all messed up. They were false worshipers. They didn't believe that the true place to worship was in Jerusalem, but they believed that it was on another mountain. And they were incredibly wrong about that. How could they think that? Oh, really, Jesus? You want us to treat a Samaritan as our neighbor? It's like shoving their head into a bucket of filth, the suggestion, and making them take a long, hard sniff. But this is what our Lord calls us to. So the simple question this morning I have for us is, who is our Samaritan? Who is your Samaritan today? Uh, The person who is perhaps a part of a group who has a collective identity that you find odious. Whose link to historical actions make you feel sick to your stomach? Who is the person who's thinking because the faults of their own make you feel disdain towards them? Makes you want to pass by on the other side? Or whose behaviors are just seen as disgusting? Repugnant? Morally reprehensible? That makes you feel an air of superiority? And to think about them as inferior in their thinking and in their beliefs and in their actions. Who is your Samaritan today? The one whom our Lord is calling you to love. And to not treat as somebody who is distant, but somebody who is nearby. Who is the neighbor. I invite you to think about it. Maybe there's somebody, maybe there's a group of people. And the next question would be, how do we begin to show the sort of love that Jesus wants us to show? This is no easy task. I know how emotionally difficult it is. There are times when I find people in particular who have hurt me, and I have a temptation to want to demonize. It's hard to show them the simplest act of tenderness sometimes. But maybe that's where we begin with 
a simple act of tenderness. Maybe it's just a smile and saying hi. There is a moment in Luke's Gospel that I find unbelievably touching. One day, Jesus is approached by a man named Jairus. Perhaps you remember the story. Jairus comes up to Jesus, and he's desperate because his daughter is about to die. Twelve years old. She's sick as a dog. Jesus, can you come and help? He walks with this man toward his home. He heals somebody else along the way, and when he gets to Jairus' house, he goes inside and he approaches the bedside along with Jairus' wife, and he says, in your NIV translation, it says this. It says, my child, get up. The Greek is far more tender and soft at this point. A dynamic translation capturing the sense of the Greek would be more like this. Sweetheart, rise. It's so tender. It's so soft. And what I find particularly touching about this is the description. Jairus is the only person named in the text. He's the only one who's given a description. We don't know the name of his wife. We don't know the name of this little girl. But Jairus, we are told, is a synagogue ruler. And it's when you know that that you realize that Jesus is being soft and tender in a way that is very unnatural for us human beings. Earlier in Luke's Gospel, Jesus goes into the synagogues. And what is the response of the synagogue rulers to Jesus? They want to throw him off a cliff. Jesus does not get a warm welcome in the synagogue. They treat Jesus as a malignancy, as an object of scorn, as someone to be thrown off a cliff. But now when Jairus needs him, he draws near. And he speaks to his daughter in the most tender of tender ways. Sweetheart, rise! You know, our natural inclination when somebody has hurt us or has treated us horrendously is that we get cold. We get frigid. We don't want to look in their direction. We walk past without a word. It's hard to say a kind word. But Jesus comes and He says, Sweetheart, rise! We may even treat the objects of their love as objects of disdain. I know how to hurt you by ignoring your kids or by ignoring those whom you love, by ignoring your crowd. Oh, not Jesus. Mm -mm. He says, sweetheart, rise. Maybe we just start with a simple act of kindness in that way with a little bit of tenderness and a little bit of softness. I told counsel this past Thursday night that one of the most powerful things I read uh, when I was on my sabbatical. I read an awful lot. had a great deal of leisure time to read, which is something I love to do. But I think the most spiritually invigorating book that I read, and I commend it to each and every one of you, is the book by Corey Ten Boom called The Hiding Place. Can I just by show of hands see how many people have actually read that book? Oh, that's good. Okay, good. Good. Lots of you. The rest of you, now you have your assignment for this Sunday, okay? Go find a copy of The Hiding Place. Read it. There's so many tender moments in this book. Corey and her sister Betsy, along with their father, are living in a house. He's a, not a watchmaker, but he fixes watches. But more than that, during World War II, they harbored Jews in their house. And they've created a little secret room where they can hide Jews. They do it at tremendous danger to themselves. This danger comes to roost when they are caught, they are uh, thrown into prison, 
Corey and Betsy, who are sisters in their 50s, are taken by train along with a whole host of other people to a concentration camp in northern Germany. Their father dies at um, a prison in the Netherlands, but they're taken up into northern Germany. They're squalid conditions. They're not treated very well. It's a flea-infested place. They hear that soon they're going to be released, or at least they hope that they're soon to be released. And they start talking about, what do you want to do when we get back into Holland? How are we going to find meaning in our lives? What do we want to spend our time doing? And they know that there's this house, like with 37 rooms or something, I can't remember, but it's this giant kind of, um, you know, like a hotel-like building that they want to purchase so that, they say, they can help rehabilitate the feeble-minded. Corey is thinking about all of those people in Holland and in other places of the world who have been victims of the Third Reich, who've been traumatized, who've had maybe their limbs blown off by the war and other things like that, those who are hurting in that way. And then she realizes that Betsy has a totally different category of people in mind. She wants to build this house for the rehabilitation of the Germans who perpetrated the crimes. She sees them as broken. Broken in their thinking. Broken in their spirituality. Broken in their spirits. And she wants to build the house for them. And it's at that moment when you go, oh, my love is so small. And it's at that moment that Corey just feels, you know, when, when Peter says to Jesus, away from me, Lord, I'm a sinner. Well, Corey kind of has the same thing. My love is so thin. It's so little yet. But Lord, I pray, give me this kind of love that wants to build a house for the rehabilitation of my enemies. Oh, can I find in my heart a category for this kind of neighbor? But how do we? How do we move toward getting the kind of heart that will see, see people like that as our neighbor and being able to reach out to them in love? There's another moment in Corey Ten Boom's story of the hiding place, which I think brings this out most wonderfully. She recounts how at, um, Betsy and her at one point, Betsy was very, very sick, and she actually died from this illness. And she was weak, she was malnourished, and she was still trying to work, and she's walking through. There was one SS soldier who was unusually cruel, malicious, mean. They would have to strip down naked before these guards, and he would mock people and he would shame them, and he would laugh at them and pour scorn upon them. And at one point, as Betsy is walking along in her infirmity, he comes behind her and he shoves her, something like this, and she falls to the ground. And Corey at that point says, I was filled with rage and hatred for this man, and I was going to go and try and kill him. Literally, she wanted to go and kill him. And some, one of the other prisoners held her back. A few years later, she's preaching in Germany after the war is all done, and she preaches on the love and the forgiveness and the grace of God that, fill, that forgives people, even like St. Paul, the murderer, and like this kind of thing. After the service, a man comes up to her and he thanks her, a German man, from the bottom of his heart, for this wonderful message and how I'm touched in a person like me. I was an SS soldier, and I can be forgiven. Corey recognized him immediately as the one who was particularly malicious and unkind and who pushed his sister, she says, I was filled with a hatred for this man and I wanted to kill him on the spot. He reaches out his hand to shake her hand 
and she holds her hand down for a moment. She says, Lord Jesus, I can't do this. Help me. Help me. And at that moment, she says, the ocean of God's love is poured into her. She finds her hand going out. She grabs the man's hand, and it's like electricity between the two of them. And she feels the love and the forgiveness of God pouring through her and into this man. It wasn't her own love. We have to become vessels where the love of God comes into us by remembering the extent of God's, of God's love for us. He who, while we were still sinners, went to the cross for us and did everything necessary. We cannot muster this sort of love on our own. It's the gift of God, Corey reminds us. Oh Lord, give us the gift to love like you love so we can never pat on ourselves on the back about how loving we are. It's the gift of God to you. So the way to get this love is to pray for God to transform us. I conclude with a parable, a modern day parable that has several versions. The gist goes like this. A man falls into a pit. And then an empathic person comes along and says, Hey man, I really feel for you down there. Feel for you. An objective person comes along and says, You know, there's no lid. It's logical that someone would fall down into that pit. And then a Pharisee comes along and sees the man at the bottom of the pit and says, You know, it's only really bad people that fall into the pit. You must deserve to be there. Confucius comes along and says, if you would have listened to me, you wouldn't be in that pit. And a Buddhist comes along and says, your pit is only a state of mind. It's illusory. It's not as dark as it looks. There's light down there. And then a country inspector comes along and says, hey, did you have a permit to dig that pit? A self-pitying person comes along and says, man, you haven't seen any pit until you've seen my pit. My pit's bigger than yours. And a charismatic comes along and says, man, let me pray for you that your pit will be no more. We need a miracle here. And then a deep south Baptist comes along and says, hey, if you have faith and there's enough water down there, we can baptize you right now. And then a hardcore Calvinist, the old kind of Calvinist, comes along and says, you are ordained to be in that pit. But then Jesus comes along and he doesn't say a thing. Instead, Jesus gets down on his hands and knees, and then he gets down on his belly in the dirt, and he reaches down his hand, and he starts to pull this man out of the pit. Let's pray. Lord, simply we ask that you would give us your love. In these divisive times, in these times where there are so many hard feelings passing around between our families, and the potential for that to happen in the church for a multiplicity of different reasons. Lord, help us, please expand our category of the broken. Not only to those who are broken by, quote-unquote, no fault of their own, but those who are broken because of their own decisions, because of their own faulty thinking, because of their lack of spirituality. Lord, we are among them. We lack in our thinking. We lack in our spirituality. Our history is fraught. We ask that by your Spirit, you would share with us your love for the world so that we would be able to act in this world in a way that brings about restoration and a way that brings peace. Hear our prayer. We say it humbly and in authenticity. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, 
the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.